And they just came to the back and we just triaged them as a group. I didn't leave them in the front, didn't put them in exam rooms. We just started doing everything differently. It resonated with people and they loved what we did. Word spread. Turns out our veterinarians and veterinary nurses loved working in an atmosphere like that where everything was different and done a certain way. Allowed us to hire a bunch of people. That made us a ton of money and allowed us to expand. Where's the balance between inspiration and perspiration when it comes to a hard job like emergency medicine? Let's find out. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, the boss who wants to do things differently is Dr. David Bessler, founder of Veterinary Emergency Group, or VEG, a growing chain of U.S. emergency veterinary hospitals. What springs out at me every time I talk to Dr. Bessler? An intense interest in the client with a high level of transparency and communication for that client. And the cult-like intensity of he and his veggies. I mean, the guy has a manifesto. So first, let's start with a crash course in where veg came from. Okay, Dave. All right, veg started as one nights and weekends emergency hospital built by a group of local veterinary practitioners, veterinarians, AKA veterinarians yeah, back in like the eighties. And, uh, I bought that from that group of 20 something veterinarians after 25 years, I bought it from them in 2014, January 17th, 2014 to be exact. And we ran that and built it up to the point where it was doing, you know, twice as much business as it had ever done in its 25 years. And then we opened up a second one, which we built from the ground up in the county across the river mm-hmm. and built that one up. And when that one was doing well, realized that this is something that we need to do in a lot of other places because we were doing it totally differently than anybody had ever done it before. I found my business partner, David Gladstein. He's an amazing guy. He, he actually found me. I like to say he Googled entrepreneurial vet near me and- <laughs> found me. He was you know, his business guy, background in private equity. He was looking for the business to help grow, just didn't have the business to make grow. And he found me and loved what I was doing and jumped on board. And he asked me that critical question, which was, uh, you know, do you want to just build another hospital every year or two years? Or do you want to create an empire? And my answer was easy. It was, I want to build an empire. I want to make a lasting impression on earth. And he connected us to some friends that he had and they connected us to some friends and we told people our story. We attracted a great investor, not on purpose, but they loved what we were doing and decided that they wanted to be a part of it. And then we got the money to buy a third place. And that was in 2017. Okay. And between 2017 and 2021, we went from three to 24. Okay. I feel like if I were looking at that would be the timeline. So my first question is about you. First, you painted at the beginning. There's a model of something I remember for decades had been pitched and had been done by some veterinarians. Look, if you don't have an emergency clinic in your area, if none of you doctors want to run this all the time, but we need one for our pet owners and we need one for the area, you all get together in a business model where you'll all go together on this hospital. You'll use it to fill this demand in the community. 
And some did, some didn't. It usually wound up just being somebody coming in and deciding they want to do emergency medicine. But that model for that hospital you're talking about did that, which was cool. So you took it over. You bought it from that group that I assume was like retiring out. Like these are the... Yep. You said it doubled. So to what do you attribute that? Was it pent up demand? Were they not taking as much business as they could? Or when you came in, your business model or how you were doing things was so different. What do you think? Was it the new business model or was it literally they just weren't taking advantage of the pent up demand in the area? It was a new business model, hands down. Okay. I've been an emergency vet my entire career. I had always been an emergency vet in specialty hospitals kind of ran the emergency service in a specialty hospital. That was my niche, niche, niche. <laughs> Both, whatever. <laughs> Depends how French you want to be. That was my niche. And that's all I ever did. But I'm a, a real emergency doctor. It's what I was born to do. It's what moves me. It's my passion. And so my entire career, I was just always looking at like, man, how could this be done better? You know, every great idea starts off with like, you know what sucks? And so there was a lot that sucked. I love people. And I've always aimed at pleasing my customers, pet owners. And I just saw the experience through their eyes. And I'm like, man, this sucks. When you're working in the ER, you know, you're sitting there typing records. It's, you know, two o'clock in the morning and the, the chart hits the bin. They always like had this, like there's a bin. Inevitably, there's a bin and there's a chart, a clipboard. And somebody comes down and like drops the clipboard in the chart. And does it make a terrible noise that starts to become this thing that haunts you? It does. I mean, it's more you hate the person that's putting it in the bin, right? Because, you, you know, you got the, that inertia. Yeah. And you're like, man, I just started writing my records and like now you're giving me more work to do, you know, which is another problem. Uh, we'll talk about that if you want. But I pick up that bin and I'd go upstairs and, you know, walk into the exam room where these people are sitting there and they'd be super angry. And I'm like, I, why are you angry? You just got here. And they're like, I didn't just get here. I filled out this clipboard like an hour ago. It went to your receptionist. You sent in somebody, a technician came in and poked on my dog's gums and asked me a bunch of questions that took their temperature. And then I waited and not, they don't know what's going on. They just assumed I'm like, you know, checking my Facebook or something down, you know, and why did it take me a half hour, an hour to get in there? Uh, so that sucked. You know, then we took their pets away from them. Like, I got to take some x-rays and we're going to take your dog. And they're like, can I come? And I'm like, no, I don't know why, but that was the rule. No. Okay. And that sucked. Uh, and then I'm like, I got to hospitalize your dog. And like, can I stay? And I said, no. And that sucked. So there was just so much that sucked about it. And then when we started, I had my own emergency hospital and I hired a bunch of people that I'd worked with in the past. They were my interns beforehand. And they came with me and they, they had faith in me that I was a good person and that I knew what I was doing. And we just did things totally differently. We just reinvented from the ground up. We didn't accept any default and just changed everything. People came in. I don't know, like, why is there a clipboard? What does that do? Like, what does the clipboard do for me? Like, oh, they're, they're promising that they'll pay the emergency fee. Right. And I'm like, what happens if they sign that and they still don't pay it? And they're like, well, then we tell them, well, you have to pay it. And then like, well, what if they still don't want to pay it? And we're like, well, you really, really need to pay it. And like, it was <laughs> like, it doesn't do us any good. And so I'm like, it just gets them angry and less likely to pay it, I think. And so we just didn't have them sign anything. And they just came to the back and we just triaged them as a group. We didn't leave them in the front, didn't put them in exam rooms. We just started doing everything differently. And it, it resonated with people and they loved what we did. Word spread. Turns out our veterinarians and veterinary nurses loved working in an atmosphere like that where everything was different and done a certain way. Allowed us to hire a bunch of people that made us a ton of money and allowed us to expand. 
That's interesting. So the model is not, the model is really focused. I mean, you mentioned, you said people and then you focused, I mean, on the customers. And I think that by itself is also revolutionary because I think there has been a tendency. So I spent a lot of time reading and looking at veteran economics over the years. And there's always a lot of focus from a lot of people on the irritation with the customer. The client can be really rough. And especially if you're having a bad day, you want to focus on the animal. There is a tendency sometimes in veteran medicine when they think about people to think rightly or wrongly, about us. There's the animals and then there's the team and the client. That's always the rough part. So how did you make sure that culture was like that from the very beginning where it sounds like you and these interns you found also had the client in mind? Because I don't know that everybody can always, I don't know that everybody has that mindset. So how did you make that happen then? And how, as you move through the years now where you're trying to get that exact focus and plant it other places where you and these original interns and you and these original people aren't, I mean, how do you carry that through? Yeah, so one thing that always bothered me as an ER doctor was, you know, my biggest fear in any case was customer dissatisfaction. Look, things happen. You can have an animal under anesthesia, you're unblocking a cat, and that's like a pretty standard emergency. And then one in every hundred cats will just drop dead under you know, sedation. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything differently, whatever. It just died. Now, people might think from the outside world, they might think like the, the horrible thing about that is like this cat died. Right. Right. And that's going to haunt you. But as a seasoned ER doctor, you learn like every once in a while, something crazy will happen. It's not your fault. Does it bother me? Yes. Am I afraid of it happening when I do it? Sure. But what's my real fear? I got to call those clients now and tell them. And what's my fear is not like, oh, they're going to be so sad because I expect them to be sad and that makes sense. But instead, what might happen is they're going to be, you killed my cat. You deliberately did this. You deliberately did that. That's my fear. And so I protected myself from that. As I brought people to the back, they were there when I sedated their cat. They saw the care with which everybody tended to their cat. They saw how caringly and lovingly the technicians were treating their cat, how carefully I was doing what I was doing. So if their cat died, they would understand this is one of those freak things. Nobody did anything weird. What they imagine in their heads when they're not there is that you were careless. You had like your earphones, your head earbuds on, and you're like, you know, rocking out to something, checking your, you know, text messaging while you're unblocking their cat. And like, oh my God, it's dead. You know, like that's what they're imagining. So you show them that. It protects you from that anger that comes from not understanding. There are other things. There's like this idea of like, you're only in it for the money. All you care about is the money, you know? And so for me, when I own my own place, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I have to say, there's this thing like, you know, you got to charge. This is, I don't know. Some veterinary business, something said, you know, the way you make money, charge for everything that you do. I don't know if you've have you ever worked with a lawyer. I'm assuming you have. Run into them, talk to them about their billing. Yeah. Right. And so you call them and you talk to them, right? And you're like, hey, so, you know, I'm looking to do this or this or that. You know, I need a lawyer. Can you help me? They're like, yeah, I think I might be able to help you, whatever it is. And then, oh, before we get off the phone, that'll be $150. Right. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Lawyers who are notorious for charging for everything that they do and then some, they do not charge you for the initial consultation. <laughs> right. Everybody gives you the guy that my electrician, I had him come over yesterday and he gave me a quote. At the end of the quote, he didn't say, and that's 50 bucks for the quote. He gave me a quote. I never have to call the guy back again. He spent time with me. In real business, you don't charge for everything that you do. You don't. You charge for the value you give somebody. 
especially in emergency hospitals. So there's talk in general practice that you develop lifelong relationships with these pet owners. And then we don't need to talk about the fact that we need to charge. I feel like, I don't know that this is, I feel like I haven't talked to enough emergency veterinarians. I feel like there is more worry with the business model, having talked to practice managers who run private ones. In the business model, the worry is you do have to charge because you don't know these people. These people are going to come in one time and they're going to incur a lot of money in that one case, and then they're going to leave and you're not going to see them again. And most of them will pay, but there's worry that we need to make sure they know at the beginning, as you said, you need to know you need to pay this because you're not, we're not going to see you again and you're not going to see us again, possibly in an emergency situation. So there is emotional worry in the business model at the emergency veterinary space. Why didn't you have that emotional worry? Where do you think it comes from? How do you make sure it doesn't come back? I don't know. When I had, again, when I had my own place, I wasn't worried that people wouldn't pay because I could always tell them there was always a point. Like if my interaction with them was like a 30 second interaction yeah. and I'm like, all right, ready. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it. And then you're going to pay me. You ready? But it wasn't, it was like, these are two hour things. They would be hospitalized for days. You know what I mean? Like I can always say to them, like they come in, let me check this. Let me check that. Here's what's going on. The real value comes 15 minutes later. Like your dog needs surgery, Right. Your dog needs a laceration repair. Your dog needs like this many hours, days, months, years of medication. There's a lot of time to collect money for the value that you're providing. But let me first figure out what's going on, tell you what's going on. And then I'll tell you, this is going to be like $1,500. You, you know, do you want to go down that road? Do you want to do that? I can give you the value. I can unblock your cat. This is how much going to cost you. But if somebody comes in, we have this all the time, yeah. especially in hospitals. An animal comes in off the street. The owner found it dead at home or lifeless or motionless, whatever it is, comes rushing to the back, rushing down the stairs, put it down on the, on the table. This dog is dead. Let's start CPR. And we're doing CPR, putting in catheters, right? We're giving drugs, doing medication. You send some poor, unsuspecting, like a, the least qualified person, you send them up to the room, ask them if they want to continue CPR. They go into this room, like, you know, and there are people are like, is my dog alive? You know, and they're like, do you want to continue CPR? Like, what's that? Like, I don't know, but it's like CPR. Do you want to continue? That's what I'm supposed to ask you. This is crazy stuff. This is the greatest one. You send the reception up. Do you want to crack the chest? That's like a real thing. <laughs> Imagine you bring your dog in. You think it's dead, right? And somebody like some kid who doesn't know anything busts into the room five minutes later and says, do you want to crack the chest? Anyway, then when we're done, they haven't had a chance to speak with you because they're not allowed in the back. They don't know anything, right? right. Then when you're done, your manager comes over and you're like, mm, that's $1,100 for the CPR. So do you want to like write a thing? And then you walk into the thing and like, yes, your dog's dead. That'll be $1,100. That's a crazy, ridiculous experience. But that's the norm. That's the norm in practices where you like, well, well, what I did it, you brought your dog in. What did you expect me? There's all sorts of ways to paint it so that you're saying like these people should have known that it was going to be a lot of money and you're charging the $1,000. That's crazy. If the tables were turned, people would come in, you would try what you did. You would walk in and you say, I'm sorry, we tried as hard as we could to get him back. We put in a catheter. I even opened up his chest to try to you know, beat his heart with my own hands. We just could not get him back. I'm so sorry. And they would say, thank you so much for your efforts. You know, I'm so sorry. I couldn't get him back. You know, thank you doctor for trying as hard as you could. What do I owe you? And then you say, well, honestly, like I wish I could have gotten to you sooner, whatever it is, but like, it's probably like $300 or whatever it is. Oh, wow. That's a lot of money. And I would say, all right. I mean, look, I, you know, if you don't have, you have it, that's fine. If you don't $150, let's be real here. You had no idea what you were going to spend the costs you were incurring. You didn't get a chance to do any of this stuff. It's just not fair to do that to people. And so people are, you can say, how much does that cost, doctor? And you're like, you know what? Nothing. When you get your next pet and you have an emergency, 
you know, come to us. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. Now, does that mean at your emergency hospital, again, another way that emergency hospitals deal with this problem is they have a hard line between the practice managers and front desk staff who talk about money and payment and the doctors and technicians who do not. They are like a typical, almost the human hospital, Doctors and nurses have no idea what anything costs. You need to talk to the front desk. You need to talk to the manager. Do those things blend? Because what you're talking about as a doctor, I understand how you as the practice owner at the one to two practices, you have a sense of these prices. You have a sense of all these things. Are your doctors empowered to do this money thing? Or have you also peeled that out? So there's the hard, there's the great wall of China between those two things. I think if you walk into a veterinary hospital and think the doctors don't know how much the things cost, like you're (laughs) fooling yourself. But they act as if they're not supposed to is one protocol that people employ. That's some crazy, unnatural, not real thing. They know (laughs) acting. Think about it. I'm going to act as if I don't have. I've heard that before. I've heard like, you know, that, oh, we don't do the money thing because, you know, it's not uh, it's not right or it's not good for the doctors to talk about money with the clients. I'm like, that's just crazy. You're doing things that incur costs. The clients are thinking about certainly thinking about both the money and the cost. Why are like, why do they have to do it? Just, it's one of those things that makes absolutely no sense. It's along the lines of like, you know, it's uh, pets are often better when their owners aren't in the room. Like somebody made that up. That's just like, a, it's just false. They're maybe scared stiff when their owners aren't in the room, but like it's somebody made that up. Why is it not better? Why is it not okay for the doctors to talk about money with the clients? doesn't make any sense to me. So how do your doctors at your practice, again, at some hospitals, they hire a practice manager, and that's the person whose job it is to worry about accounts receivable and accounts payable. They're the person who worries about whether stuff gets paid. Who worries about accounts payable at a veg hospital? About accounts payable? Our hospital managers worry about like you know accounts payable. But in the moment, like that's after yeah. the fact. Clients are gone, whatever it is. The doctors worry about getting paid. The receptionists worry about getting paid. The client has to pay before they leave. We all worry about that. We just say like, did they pay? It's almost like, did you remember to take off the bandage before they walked out the door? Who worries about that? Whose job is it to worry that we took off the bandage before they left? Well, it's the doctor, it's the nurse, it's the receptionist, whoever notices it, you gotta pay before you go. And so it's everybody's job, it's not one person. Okay. But to answer your question about who's empowered to do that money thing, the doctors are certainly empowered. All of our doctors are empowered. We literally have it in our manifesto. I don't know if I can curse on your show, but it says give shit away for free. In our manifesto, give shit away for free, which means if you find yourself in a situation where it is just not right to be charging people for something, 
or you're taking a step towards them. You have an established trust or somebody has you against the wall saying, you're going to let my dog die because I can't pay. Da, 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 da. You can say, you know what? It's free. Now let's talk about what we need to do for your dog. Disarm that. Don't let them punish you for like, make you feel like a bad person. You can argue. You're not going to win that argument. You can argue, but I have to charge for what I do. You can argue that. You're not going to win that argument. They're still going to make your lives miserable. So you are armed. You are empowered to give shit away for free. Doesn't mean give everything away for free. Don't do it all the time, but you can use it as a weapon, just like every owner can. When I owned my own hospital, I was certainly empowered to give shit away for free. And I did sometimes. And it saved my butt. And it got us a lot of business. And it made us successful. And it made people love us. We make a ton of money, even though we give shit away for free. The more we give shit away for free, the more money we make. So that is the thing. It feels good for you to say it. It sounds good to hear it. And I just think about different personality types who hear that stuff say, right, I understand that works for you because your people, whatever, have the right personality. You're in the right neighborhood, but I am in a different kind of neighborhood with a different kind of hospital, with a different kind of staff. And that idea doesn't flow with that person. Have you reached, like, that works for you in the way that business model works at Veg, and maybe that's what makes Veg different, because Veg is a different thing in different places with a different context. But would you say that the entire, all of veterinary medicine would work better under that principle, or that works Veg because it's the right mix in that pot? I would say I go to Amazon again and again because I had this, this great stethoscope store with Amazon. I ordered a stethoscope, yeah. a little red neonatal stethoscope. And I got it prime, whatever. The next day I come, it's like sitting on my desk. I open it up and it's a black full-size stethoscope. I call them up. I'm like, hey, got the wrong stethoscope, you know, whatever it is. And they're like, oh, which one did you order? We said, oh, this one. I'm so sorry for whatever. I'm like, okay, how can I send this back? And they're like, you know what? Just keep it. Don't send it back. We'll send you the right one the next day. The next day I get there, the same black large stethoscope is there. And I call them again. I'm like, I'm so sorry to do this, but you sent the wrong one again. And they said, you know what? The skews might be mixed up. Are you okay if you order it in pink or in, it was pink, is it okay if you order it in pink? Because the skew will be probably, you know, I set up, I'm like, you know what? Yeah, that's fine. Pink is fine. And so the next day I come there and the pink stethoscope is there. And they're like, you know what? It's okay. You don't have to pay for it because you didn't get the color that you wanted. So they sent me three stethoscopes for the price of right. zero. Do you have any idea how much money I spent with Amazon? Like a lot. I spent a lot of money on Amazon. Why? Because they, it's not only because, because I know they're doing what's right. I didn't get the stethoscope I wanted. They chose not to take that one back because honestly, it's not worth their time. They know they'll get me in lots of other places. And so, yeah, I think all of veterinary medicine can do a great job with that. Unless it's like, I don't know. I would say if the value that you're providing, right, is a commodity, like all you do is give people heartworm and flea and tick medication. When, you know, that's a commodity. It's the same from you as it is from anybody else then yeah, I think you'd have a problem if somebody's like, I can't pay for this. You know, you're like, well, yeah, this is all I do. And so that's like, that's the entirety of our relationship is you come to me, I give you flea and tick medication. Then sure, I think you'll have a problem giving it away for free. But if you have, if you have a deeper relationship where they have a lot, they have a lot of value to gain from you, then give them some stuff for free. The stuff, the value that they don't see, don't charge them for that. Charge them for the value they can see. Okay, so that reminds me of, again, you're, you're talking about a lot of transparency. You're talking about all the staff members being open about what's going on with the pet, keeping the people informed. The transparency, especially in an emergency situation where things can happen fast and things are, can be a little more out of control in treatment, how did you decide and how is everyone comfortable 
with operating with transparency for the client. So inviting the client back to watch this stuff happen. Sometimes there's crazy stuff that happens in the emergency treatment area. So tell me where the line, I mean, clients could opt out out of that, but how do the people handle that where they are working under intense pressure trying to handle a medical emergency, but also they have an audience? What's that like? A lot of people are scared of it at first. Okay. I tell them, you know, there's a great, there's a shirt that says uh, real doctors treat more than one species right? That's the shirt for in, in yeah. favor of veterinarians. And I challenge that. I say real doctors treat their patients in front of their clients. You know, real doctors, you know, I get my hands sewn up. I got a cut. It's not like the doctor can take my hand into the next room. You know, he's sewing my finger up right in front of me. Yeah. Not only that, but my, when I go to the urgent care and, you know, they sew up my hand, he knows that I know sutures. I put in a couple of sutures here and there and he knows that I'm judging him. Right. But he's still doing it right in front of me. Is that nerve wracking? No, it's called being a doctor. That's what you do. It's called being a nurse. You treat your patients in front of your clients. Are some of them crazy? Yeah. And so one of the skills you have to learn is how to explain what you're doing. <laughs> I had this one, one of my favorite emergency moments was uh, I had a, this guy, this place where I did my internship, guy was calling for like, it seemed like hours trying to find our hospital. His dog was like, had lost consciousness. His tongue was swollen, couldn't breathe. Whole family's in the car. Yeah. Finally, like comes in, like barrels into the back, throws his dog down on the table. The dog's like, you know, looks dead. And I put in like a tracheostomy. I'm cutting into the dog's neck. We had this big burly technician who's working with us. And he's like holding the guy back because the guy's trying to like rush at me going like, what are you doing to my dog? You know, and I'm turning around. I'm like, I'm saving his life. And I'm like, you know, cutting into his neck. It was an amazing ER moment. But like, that's what it's about. There's crazy stuff happening. People may not understand it. Emotions are high. One of your skills as a great ER professional is learning how to handle people, how to explain it to them. You think emergency, like human emergency doctors have had any different? Somebody comes into your OR, their kid is just shot, you know, on the street somewhere, right? And they come in, you think that parent is going to be calm? Here, fill out this clipboard, right? They're not going to be calm. So if you're a real emergency hero, you need to learn how to like, how to handle these people. Given the fact that this isn't the way maybe medicine is practiced in every hospital. So there's different veterinarians to go in different places all over and they, they find a place hopefully that works best for them. The ones that work at Veg, how do you find staff members from the front desk all the way up to the, the board certified ER specialists who are working in the treatment area and talking to people in the exam room? How do you find these people? Is it hard to fit them into the culture? What does culture sound like as you're getting more and more hospitals and the overseeing of them stretches farther and farther out, and it's at more of a distance. So I always wonder, this passion that happens at the start, this fire gets spread, but sometimes it gets thinned out too. What is that? How do you do that? I love that question. So first of all, I feel like my job is I'm doing the never-ending PhD in culture. I'll start with this. First of all, in general, we don't have board-certified uh, specialists that work for us, and that's important because in terms of finding the people what we need is somebody who knows how to do emergency medicine and is a hero. Somebody who loves being the hero, who wants to help people and their pets when they need it most. That's our mission. And we are really, truly, honestly driven by our mission. Unlike other companies where they just kind of duct tape their mission onto their existing company. Our company is, really runs on our mission, helping people and their pets when they need it most. Easiest way is we find people who love helping people and their pets when they need it most. They love being emergency heroes. They can learn what needs to be done. They don't need letters after their name. They just need to know how to do it. Everything from, you know, unblocking a cat, you know, uh, tapping a pericardial effusion, but also handling crazy customers who are worried about their pets, right? Handling that, doing things in front of people, 
They have to want to be heroes and do whatever is involved in that. So that's how we like find those people. You know, it's funny that you you ask about culture and growth. You know, I, for me, you can't call it a focus. It's an oxymoron to say I have I have two focuses or two foci, right? That's an oxymoron. Focus is one thing, right? But I, I concentrate, let's say, on two things: growth and culture. Okay. And they're at odds with one another. Correct. You know, the easiest way to lose your culture is to just grow without taking care of your culture. As you grow, your culture will thin out and you need to do something about that. But if you focus on just maintaining your culture, and there are a lot of civilizations that have done that by being insular, not letting anything new in from the outside, not bringing in new people, your agoraphobia, what is it, fear of strangers? Is it, is it agoraphobia? Xenophobia. Like Xenophobia. Agoraphobia is like afraid of being outside. I don't know. Yeah, you're afraid of being outside. That would be troubling too. That would be hard. Uh, xenophobia. So, you know, fear of strangers, anything new, you kind of insulate whatever it is that will protect your culture. Your culture will like be there, but your entire civilization will die. You certainly will not grow. And so culture can be the enemy of growth and not just growth, the enemy of culture. So I have to protect both. I have to figure out ways to bring in new, to branch out into new places without losing our culture. And then as we do those things, right? So, so for me, Culture, this is what I've discovered about culture. People talk about good culture, bad culture, company sure. culture, right? I'll say this. People ask, like, what is the definition of culture? And they're, like, you know, falling over themselves trying to figure out what is the definition of company culture? Company culture does not have its own definition. It doesn't, doesn't earn that. It's the same definition of culture as every other definition of culture, except for yogurt culture and bacterial culture. Slightly different. That's maybe a different definition of culture. But, like... I don't know, Nordic culture, I guess is the, is the right way to say Viking culture, but let's say Viking culture, right? Yeah. Uh, 19th century Native American culture, mall rat culture, right? 1980s mall rat culture. You understand what I mean when I say, when I talk about those cultures, company culture has the same exact definition. The problem people have with it is that they can't imagine a company having a culture in the same way that Vikings have a culture, right? But you do know when I say Viking culture, I'm talking about their language, I'm talking about their dress. I'm talking about their rituals, their history, their sacred texts, their social norms, their music. Yeah. And so like, well, how does a company have a culture? Well, guess what? If you want to have a company culture, you need to have dress, language, social norms, history, rituals, sacred texts. So my thing is, I think most companies just don't have a culture. They just don't have one. Ben Horowitz, great book. Uh, I think you are what you do, I think, something like that. But it's... um just talks about company culture. And he's like, if you don't deliberately set your company culture, create your company culture, most of it will be uh, coincidental and the other will be a mistake. And that's what it is. Like culture may create itself in some way, shape or form, or for the most part, you just won't have it. And that's what I think most companies exist in. We have a culture, a definite culture. We have a mode of dress. We have social norms. We have rituals. We have sacred texts. We have language. Um, we have all those things that those things make up our culture. Um, they're very well defined. So Native American culture is not good or bad, just like Viking culture is not good or bad. Company culture is not good or bad. You either have a company culture, or you don't. And then you either enjoy being in your company culture or you don't enjoy being in your company culture. That's good or bad culture. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com 
And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.